0: and we are back thank you so much for joining us uh i have a very special guest here with us today it's obviously the favorite my favorite part of the show once again and this one is certainly up there i i've been dying to pick this guy's brain uh he is all macro well i'm sure he's got more skills in more areas than that but he's got quite the macro chops and this is obviously a very macro driven market and so uh I figured it was the perfect time to have on this gentleman. He was kind enough to join us. So, without further ado, Mister Hugh Hendry, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, pal, and uh, great to have you on the show.
1: An absolute, an absolute pleasure. Let's do it.
0: Well, do you, see, you, you may not, you might want to take that back uh, huh. in forty-five minutes or so. Anyway, man, um, this is your wheelhouse, and kind of the, the thought that I had about the interview is being a guy that runs uh, runs a fund. Um, I first wanted to just pick your brain about your career. Um, you've, you've been a lot of places. You've done a lot of really interesting things, worked with some really interesting people. And then just wanted to dive into the macro and pick your brain and, and uh, you know, kind of just see what, how you're looking at the world. Um, but first, I got to ask you something. Um, if you live where you live, which I was I – I had the good fortune – of visiting that god-blessed little island that you live on um first time there down at nikki beach and you know just doing the doing the saint bart's thing and i was my wife and i just absolutely fell in love what in the world are you doing in london
1: oh um great, great. well you know too much of anything you know is
0: <laughs> yeah you, you got
1: to get distance to 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 gain perspective yeah and um my, my my family. I, I you know I, I have the dishonor of being the father that chose not to live with the family because you know, I fell in love. You know some people some people fall in love. that have girlfriends. I have Saint Barthes So um, Saint Bar is my, my touchstone. Um, I'm I'm 10 years younger there, and oh. you know, my ideology, uh, my game plan is to be younger uh, tomorrow. Uh, yeah. I'm working on it. I'm working on it today. Uh, when I'm in London, I, uh, <laughs> it takes a pause. Um, but but yeah, London, as I see the see the the folks, and then I'm hoping I've got a. I'm hoping to maybe get out to LA. I've got a great great buddy, and he is going to be. Performing, He's written some amazing music, which we wrote, or he wrote principally in, in St. Bart's. But I jammed on it, and he's going to do his first live gig towards the end of the month. So, um, you know, I'm out there.
0: Hey, you know something that blew, first of all, and if you guys have never been to St. Bart's, Hugh you, you may not want me saying this, but you've got to fix it because it is just spectacular. But one of the things that I wanted to actually ask you about before we dive into the, dive into the finance and investing side of things um, we, one of the things that blew me away about the island was the cuisine, the food. Man, the food was just lights out. What is that? Is that just a kind of a, the island effect of the melding of different influences, or you know, there's just this little island out there in the middle of the, you know, middle of the sea there, and the the food was just unbelievable. What what, what do you attribute that to?
1: Oh, okay. So so that's that's it's easy, but it's it's a really good insight because. Um, at the risk, without a doubt, of, of upsetting the many, um, but I do not like the Caribbean. Okay, and and despite the location, Saint Bart's is very definitely not the Caribbean. It is you know it's the farthest outpost of Europe. It's a tropical central central pay. Yeah, um, it is, you know it is um, you, when you're there, you're landing. In Europe, um, it's kind of like Monaco 50 years ago, mm-hmm. um, and who knows what it would look like in 50 years' time. But you know, let me let me recite the, the golden trinity. There is the island has been the island is unique in being uh, under the the guidance um, of a. Uh, weird Anglo-Saxon cult from northern France who have secured prosperity and avoided debt. So it has no debt, it has no taxes, and it has no crime. And like you say, it is set up to have the best of everything, that life can afford, from the most pristine, beautiful white beaches to these fantastic restaurants and hotels. That the majority of accommodation is via uh, luxury uh, villas. I mean, I'm responsible. I, I have one um, gorgeous villa uh, near Gouverneur uh, for six bedrooms, and I'm currently uh, building another. And so we'll see how that pans out but um yeah it's you're not coming to the Caribbean the Caribbean is typically you arrive and you go to some luxury resort which is caged you know you're you are separated from the local community because it's it's Sadly, it's probably a locale which has suffered from poor governance um, and it has crime and it has all social problems. That is not St. Bart's. St. Bart's is Disneyland uh, for the voyeuristic. And uh, for me, being a lover of all things French, I, I recall my, my my first lunch with feet in the sand, you know, topless girls smoking Gitan and then drinking champagne from the bottle and dancing on the table. And I thought, yes Gee- I, 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 don't, I don't know what it is but I like this place.
0: That is hilarious. You brought that up. We went down to Nikki Beach while we were there, and which everybody goes to, I'm sure. Uh, and sure enough, man, I, I saw that. So walked in, lady probably 35, 40 years old, dancing on the table, bottle of champagne. And I was, it was just like, uh, I'm trying to think. It was like, it's like a spring break party, but for adults, you know what I mean? People are cutting back, having a great time, but it doesn't get that crazy. You know, it's not that crazy, obviously, but it just kind of had that. Uh, I man, it was just an unbelievable place with an unbelievable uh, vibe. And we went into our first restaurant, just looking through the menu, going, "Holy smokes, what? What did I stumble into here?" So, uh, no, man, I, 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 I very much envy you, and I think that's one of the most, uh, one of the most pristine, beautiful, just fantastic little pieces of the world. So. Uh, Good, good, good on you, man. Good pick. Thank you. Um, Okay. So, so I kind of want to start from the beginning because listening to you talk uh, and reading a little bit about your background and your bio and one of the first questions I have, I kind of come from um, a blue collar background. Uh, My dad was a stockbroker, but, you know, never, never went to college. Um, so, you know, he was in the financial world, but, but I kind of refer to it as blue-collar finance. Um, you know, hustling, you know, just uh, not, not managing a fund or anything like that. Um, how does a kid, grows up in uh, Scotland, and whose dad is a truck driver? Your dad was a truck driver, correct? A lorry driver, as they refer to Correct. That. Yeah, correct. So, how did you? What sparked it? Was this just serendipity from going to college and running into investing? What What started you down this path?
1: Mm, I mean, heavens! Um, you know, I, I've I've written, uh, I've written, I've written the book. The, I've got the story. Of, if we have any uh, members of the publishing community listening, uh, which is you know, which is this, which is this story, like from really this. A uh, scary, profoundly poor, like housing project, in the um, I, you know a failed social experiment. Um, you know, within twenty years, it was clear it it, it it was just not it just was not offering the promised land. And you know, at a tender age, up until about the age of seven, I I was subject to you know, first hand scenes of violence. Um, somehow, my my family who who were uh, keen to like to prosper, you know, to, to climb, um, stuck out and, and we were subject to, you know, a, a lot of ghastly behaviour. Um, and, and, and you know, my story is, is a to, points A to B, you know, simple journalism from the, this place which is called Castle Milk, or in French I, it's called Chateau du Lay to, to saint barr Um So I'll give you the... the- the, the, obviously the shorthand version um, I was just a weird kid I, you know, I am the living embodiment of Benjamin Button and at a you know, at a profoundly tender age somewhere between 10 and 12 years old, I came to, to reject the environment that I found myself in and lo and behold, I worked it out that education would be my passport and I, I i swear to you i for i forwent um at what we would call you know puberty uh, early adulthood all the crimes and misdemeanors that that entails from your recreational drugs to drinking to girls to to what have you and i studied my ass off now you know, I've looked deep within myself, and I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know again, the you know the family marks you. I've kind of one interpretation. Um, I'm very conscious that if we swing macro, that in 1979, uh, under the new, like there was a, a political revolution with Thatcher and Reagan, and there was this idea that if people own things. Their behaviour changes, and and so there was the my my parents were granted the right to buy public housing stock at below market, um, and they did, and, and these are folk that would never have conceived of having either the right or the financial means to purchase a home, and yet with that profound revolution that happened, and and that meant. But that, that, that I think like sent them into this cascade of fear and, and you know they, they worked harder and longer hours and, and my father took on more long distance gigs, if you will. And I think I just I seeped all of that, that in and I became kind of a warrior and I was like, gee, I you know, I'm just not cut out for this and so there you know, there you go. And then fast really far forward to the end of my university and in Scotland, you could take a fourth year. I mean, remember, I started university at the age of 17. It's, pre- oh, wow. pre- yeah, it's preposterous. Um, and I was, and again, hopefully there are not many listeners. But uh, you, what is a kid like me going to choose? I, I chose accountancy. Right, like so, you stay at home with your parents. Like it wasn't for me the the luxury of going to a foreign location, like you know a city in England or elsewhere in Scotland, you know, and, and playing the game. I stayed at home, and it was like I'm stepping up a ring, a rung. And so, like I did accountancy, other friends did did law, um, and I got to the end. I was like. I, I, I was burnt out at 17 I was burnt out at 17 and <laughs> <laughs> I, I, thankfully I went oh you know my favourite movie was Mickey Rourke and Angel Heart, and I dressed like um, the character and, and I and I drove a De Chirvaux, and I had this I was actually sponsored by a very large accountancy practice to join them, you know, like you know, to, so they gained gain the, the best graduates. And, and I remember going back and saying to the senior partner, I'm just not cut out for this, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> You know, and he said to me, "You will regret this. You, every day that you you I, and you the joy of my life." Of course, is there hasn't been a morning where, where I have regretted
0: that decision. So there you go. I yeah, I would say well, at least from my perspective, I'd say that, that was the right choice. <laughs> um, okay, so the, you start off. So then you go from there, and do you jump right into working at Edinburgh, the in, the investment manager, or
1: pretty much yeah, because um, to, again, at the end of that course, actually in that final fourth year I stumbled across this it was funny because at the end of the we're at high school yeah? but at the end of high school uh, I just could not bear another 12 months of doing geography I mean I knew it was like an easy way to get an A in the grades um, but, but I just couldn't prostitute myself anymore <laughs> and, and, so, and so I chose economics and again to, to, unfortunately to give you some hint as to how old I might or might not be but I recall back at my school yeah, you know, there were classes for the girls to do secretarial studies. You know I mean that's that was my environment, and and I chose yeah I chose a I chose a subject called economics, and I I really didn't have it. I did not have a clue as to what I was signing up to. But again, that that was fortune, and uh and you know lo and behold, I found something with a deep uh, interest, and then at the Death of university. I found this um, special subject called market. I mean, it's such a lousy name, but market-based accounting research. Let's call it MBAR. It sounds like a punk rock radio show. Uh, so, <laughs> an MBAR. We had the forerunner of Bloomberg terminals. Um, we had uh, data stream uh, ter- computer terminals, and I was assigned. Projects whereby you would examine stock price behaviour in order to determine whether the markets were, were reacting and processing information and whether they were getting it right. Um, an example of that would be a, a company announces a change in depreciation policy. Now, that um, could have... Could be a determinant in either lowering or increasing profits but of course it would have no bearing on the cash flow and hence the valuation of, of the company and the question was would the market be duped? You know, it was like one of those. That was your hypothesis. And so for me, you know, that was me becoming a rock and roll star. That was me picking up a guitar. You know, that was me. I was fascinated by the tempest. You know, that I there I was, and I was in this dark room, and I was watching to see what would happen. You know, I was trying to. To, to stare into the gap behind the curtain. And and that, that started this lifelong fascination. And and again that prompted me to rush to the office of the accountant and, and, and tender, tender my resignation before I'd even started. And and to your point, yes I, I was again profoundly fortunate. Um, but I secured a position at a profoundly prestigious uh, Edinburgh investment ma- um, investment management business and by and large a force of character and passion I vibrate some some people vibrate stronger than others and i, I belong to that that club and secondly they actually had been advised by consultants in their quest to uh, attract more north american pension fund mandates and the one critique was that their recruitment policy could do with being more diverse and so they reached out to the local kid if you will so that's my story
0: that's that's fantastic so okay so from there you go into you go to credit Suisse, correct well, so I was there for eight years. Oh, no, you had to ba- oh, you were there for eight years. Okay, eight years,
1: and and I I failed. So then I was. I was like, whoa, this is happening.
0: And and I worked. Yeah, and they had this. And what some, you, what were you doing there? What were you doing for them for that eight years? I I was. For three
1: years, a trainee investment analyst, and so I would review on behalf of different geographical teams um, the investment portfolios. So, you know, uh, investment reports would come into the office. They would be processed in in the house manner, if you will. Um, A report would be written. Uh, That report would be uh, both verbally and and the paper version shared amongst the team. Uh, There would be a synthesis of ideas, and then I would go forward to the investment policy committee and and i would i would give the team's view to the rest of the you know the all of the other geographic geographical uh, departments and, and investment leaders um and it was vicious you know like you, you had to pre- the, the reports if you had syntax errors your life was not worth living and and then to present to these old young men um, was, was rather daunting, but that's what I did, um,
0: yeah. No, that's, I, uh, I laugh when you talk about that, I really, I've actually got that, and I'll get to this later in the interview, but one of the questions that I was going to get into, is, I feel like something you just kind of poked at, which is, uh, there's, there's the way that they tell you to manage money. And then, if you actually want to be successful at it, I, I feel like in practice it 's much different than the concept you know and, and I, 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 I was reminded of that question when you talked about if you have a syntax error <laughs> just yeah. you know sometimes i 'm amazed at the things that people focus on in this business and the things they ignore um, okay so so from there you 're there for you 're cutting your chops you 're you're, you're, you're paying your dues and then you run into Crispin okay, walk Run me through that. I got to hear that. Story.
1: Yeah. So C- Crispin was let, let's call him a pioneer in the the European hedge fund mm-hmm. community. you know, one of the the first five uh, managers to open a, a long short fund and and with the the macro uh, bias. What is macro? Macro? Macro back in the day was was like a James Bond mandate. You know, a license to thrill. Um, a, license, a license to do anything, anything. Um, and, you know, and you have to give you know, profound, deep consideration before you give such a license. Um, but, but Christmas had secured his. He'd been funded by the men from the whole kind of uh, Soros and the whole European gang that had kind of you know, initially seeded Soros. Uh, and then Crisp and Crispin's first three years were—he you know, was a bad out of hell. And he made he made money, um, and then he had a, a moment, an Icarus moment, um, where he had—you um, know—one of my great things. I don't know if you've come across it—is the the great arrogance and the conceit of a well-formed argument. He had a <laughs> profoundly insightful argument, um, which was following the the opening up and the liberalisation of Eastern Europe via the demise of the Berlin Wall he found him he looked at his portfolio and his equity portfolio and the winners were all growth stocks you know high, high price earnings ratio growth stocks and and he said well in another vernacular that is uh, essentially it's a, it's like a, it's almost like a zero coupon bond it's, it's the max duration that one can furnish and he thought to himself you know he was worried about liquidity you know, because one of the great golden rules of, of macro is I I will and therefore I must secure the right to change my opinion you know? mm-hmm. and therefore you need you need liquidity and so he was concerned about the liquidity aspect in single name high high uh, beta high price energy ratio of stocks and so he alighted upon the idea that he could buy the British Consul this was an undated so zero, is, you know, a zero, uh, guilt, zero coupon guilt. The, the the greatest duration you could get. R- rates were coming down. You know. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is nineteen, have it's nineteen ninety three or so. You know, where Fed funds rates? I'm guessing eight, maybe. Um, yeah. So they were. He, he got it. He, they were coming down, but he got greedy. <laughs> he was Blinking stupid. And I think he bought about fifteen percent of the issue. I mean, no one buys fifteen percent of a government issue, and in 1994, like Greenspan did the the one honest thing he ever did, he had a preemptive hike in rates, and his you know, Orange County went down, and the whole system kind of like kind of had a had a minor heart attack. And he he had resisted the the early calls to liquidate at a discount, and then he could he couldn't liquidate, and then his clients liquidated him. So I met Crispin. I met a very humbled Crispin. Um, I met him five years after that, um, and he was very much my finishing school. So if I, if I had learnt a fear and a trepidation for syntax, uh, Crispin uh, taught me curiosity, and he taught me to misbehave. It's better that you teach your kids to misbehave than they figure it out themselves. Well, yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, that's what we did. We misbehaved. We misbehaved a great deal.
0: My my wife and I have a joke where I hear these parents say, "All I want is m- for my child to be normal and happy," and I just sit there and I go, "Man, we are aiming at the complete opposite end of the spectrum <laughs> for our kids." And I know, you know, I know it comes with, I know it comes with its 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 uh, its costs, and I know it comes with its share of headaches. But yeah, you want to just get them out there and explore, right? Let that mind and imagination run run wild um mm. and so how did you how did you guys meet like how did that i i was just curious you know hearing your story over the years how did you run into him like where did that meeting actually take place i, I again i mean it sounds like i'm
1: making this Hey, of and folks it makes great book <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, they're, no think... one's no one's interested in publishing but um fate again There i was you know um, I discovered this N-B-A-R, Account of Research, you know. Uh, I changed the course and the direction of my life. Uh, fate intervenes and I end up with the best position you could possibly secure in the confines of Scotland. But actually, in the confines of the United Kingdom, yeah, I joined Bailey Gifford, which is the premier investment management group in the United Kingdom. Um, and, and the fate was that they were on a diversity programme and they needed some kind of rough grip in the system, right? You know, so they got that. Um and then it just didn't yeah, i just i we were chalk and cheese, you know, it was like. Uh, my fair lady, I was a cockney geezer. You know, like they were trying to teach me syntax, and I was rock and roll. And we we just didn't see eye to eye. I made a profound, a profound error of judgment in backing uh, Reader's, Di- Reader's Digest. Reader's um, Digest. I never want to mention that name again. And I, I, you, know, I, I destroyed my reputation. I had to get out. If they had not been so successful and noble, they would have fired me. But they were. Cut from a different cloth. Eventually, the only company that would take me, would you believe, in London was was Credit Suisse because they had ambitions of developing their pension fund business, and I I came from the premier pension fund business. Um, but it was yeah, you know, it was goddamn awful. Yeah, you know, I went from being like you know the the seventh best, the the seventh rookie driver in like the top Formula One racing car team to be the kind of I don't know the seventh engineer in the bottom Formula One racing team and it was you know like you go to the coffee machine you look up and it'd be like a sea of bland I like how did my life end at this inglorious moment and at the at the and the guy who hired me, unfortunately, I didn't have any respect for him. Um, I set my bar very, very high. He could he, he was ill one day. On that fateful day, he was meant to—he had an appointment for lunch with Crispin o because Credit Suisse had an investment in one of the O'Day uh, mutual funds, and I was sent to take notes on his behalf. And I went through gritted teeth and I kicked every piece of litter on the way to that meeting thinking, Is, I have reached the bottom of my career. I'm now taking notes on other managers. I, I cannot get any lower. Um, but of course, that was the fateful lunch where we had the encounter and yeah, it was Lennon and McCartney. Uh, <laughs> and we made, we made music, you know, and, there was, and he said, hey, listen, you 're a pirate, uh, come to my home for dinner tonight and let let 's explore opportunities and within a year you know i was i was managing I was managing the fund that i 'd gone to take notes
0: on unbelievable unbelievable so in how long were you guys together so so when you joined him. You said he was humbled. Was this sort of like his second act then? Was this kind of a rebirth for him? I mean, were you one of the first and early employees, or were you added to a, uh, an established existing team at that point?
1: Oh, I mean, heavens. <laughs> there were, like, four people. Oh, Yeah, no. <laughs> And it was all, I mean, I, I mean, it was like Brightside Rebus. I, mean, I mean, I'll spare you the details, but it was it was a, 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 a comedy. Oh, um yeah. And um yeah, I mean I think I was the fourth employee or something. And and it was very sleepy and everyone was terrified of Crispin. But I, I'd been brought up eight years in this terrifying intellectual hothouse in Edinburgh. I'd been I received so many beatings that I did not I d I didn't I I didn't give a damn for punishment, but I, I knew I knew my voice. Um, and then Crispin he, again the, the curiosity and the misbehaviour. We looked at charts. I tell you, like, in my Edinburgh days, if you looked at a chart, you'd be on your ear. You know, yeah. like, yeah. charts, like, charts are lame, but, you know, the, the charts just gave me rhythm. You know, it's like, you know, I'm trying to learn the bass guitar now, because, again, I'm getting younger. Uh, most people begin at the age of 12. I'm beginning a little bit later. Um, and, you know, I go to bass, uh, bass tabs when I hear a, a, a song I want to play. And you can see the, you know, play play A5. A5 would be, that would be A, actually. Uh, whatever E5 would be whatever, you know. But, so it gives you the the, the chord arrangement where it says, you know, press the fret here, press the fret there. But it doesn't give you the rhythm. It doesn't give you that, um, you know, da, da, da the syncopating rhythm. And that's what the charts, the charts gave me. Um, and that transformed me from this kind of, yeah, this curious, passionate person to someone that every now and again, when the forces aligned, I could kind of see around corners. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was the Charles and that was Crispin. That's, um, it's,
0: it, that's fascinating to hear that because um, I was raised, you know, a, Buffett is next to God. Uh, it's all about valuation, all that. And I spent the first part of my career kind of looking at technical analysis and the chart reading is... Just nonsense witchcraft. And um, as I got introduced to it and warmed up, I had a similar experience. I I haven't heard anybody put it that way, but I'm going to steal it from you because it helped me find a rhythm. I still look at things through a uh, fundamental lens. But, you know, like I tell our guys, the charts tell us they may not tell us what to do, but they're great at telling you when to, you know, when to enter, right? When to start playing, when to cut off. Um, that's a great way to put it. They, they help mm-hmm. you find your rhythm. They did the exact same thing for me. Um, yeah. So now you're, you're, at, you're at Odie's Fund. And if I understand this correctly at this point, Eclectica was a fund that you were, you were running for him before you went out on your own, correct?
1: Well, what, what happened? So uh, Crispin's fortune was deservedly reversed to the, to the positive. By the by, the Nasdaq crash, um, and and so his hedge fund did terribly well in that period, 2000-2003 and again, having taken advantage of his skill set and his insights and made them my own, um, I had wrestled control of this European mutual equity long only mutual fund, and. You know, I I secured something which was very rare in a world of mutual funds in in Europe, European equities. My fund w- was flat in years. You know, the German stock market fell to the same magnitude as the Nasdaq, which is to say, had an eighty percent haircut. And I went through those years. I was modestly up from two thousand to two thousand and three, and and I was featuring on CNBC. Um, you know, I had a voice
0: and I was misbehaving and I had performance. I do you know
1: what? Actually, it was was
0: funny. That's where I actually first saw you was, uh, on CNBC. Do you know what? They tell
1: me I made a heck of a lot of sense when the volume was set to zero. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, well I I I was a fan right from the beginning. I just I loved the angle that you looked at things through and you did have you had some you had some monster years. You guys also did pretty stinking well during O eight as well. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah, but like you um again idiosyncratic, um doing things radically different, you know, the so the, the eclectic thing, having you know, burnish my credentials with the management of the long only. You know, the rule that any successful person is, um, you know, why did you do it? Because I could, Yeah. Why did I set up a hedge fund? Because I could, because I had to. You yeah, know, I demonstrated that, you know, with both hands tied behind my back, I had preserved capital in like the one in a hundred year storm, Yeah. where markets just collapsed. I had um, all my competitors... Trying um, and lobbying the regulator for me to be declassified because they're like, it's not fair. It's okay for us if we turn around to the client and say, oh, sorry, we lost you 36% of your precious (laughs) capital. It's okay if everyone loses 36%, but if some idiot with this Scottish accent and he's up three... You know, it's just untenable. You know that was the nonsense. So anyway, I, I was like, I'm I'm done with LOL, like, you know, the, you know, get me out of here and you know, give me the fund, or I'm going to walk. I'm going to do it myself. You know, and and uh, and Crispin's trepidation was he could see himself in me, and he had a he had a fear that I would have to undertake that same passage of. Of kind of self harm that he had experienced with the with Greenspan and race and his duration asset, but he was forgetting that I had gone through that. I had eight years of self harm at Bailey Gifford. So anyway, we you know uh, an agreement was was reached. And again, I um, you know Crispin had been funded by the the whole Soros kind of you know diaspora. Um, I got funded by this by the same group, and um, and that. And so I launched that October 2002 within the auspices being a partner of, of OD Asset Management. And you know, my, my big bet was commodities and the first full calendar year. I made 50% and I got on gold. Um, and that, that, set, that's, that, set, that set the path for me to, to move
0: forward. So fast forward a little bit. It, another uh, fascinating thing is, is hearing you talk about you know, I, I think every great, and well, in one way or another, I think most people assume that every great investor has to go through that, right? They got to get burned once. Like my buddy was saying, you, you're not a you're not a fund manager until you blow one up. Um, <laughs> so, but but I was, I, I, maybe it was because when I started, I, I got in, I kind of began my career right before the financial crisis. But I, I never really had to do that either, just because maybe I grew up in the industry, I saw the pain of loss. Um, or maybe it 's just a personality thing right that, that that ability or focus on preservation of capital do you think that that's, that had something to do with your background coming up hard scrabble maybe you have, you appreciated it more or the value what, what do you attribute that to why, why do some guys need to you know pull an Icarus and fly too close to the sun, and other guys you know like me in my career my my mistake is probably not being aggressive enough at times. Um, what what do you attribute that to why, why do there some guys you know don't need don't fly too close to the sun others do well that that is
1: that is a great question
0: um and I can come at, let me come
1: at it at least at least in two different directions so um again I said to you I was just the weirdest kid yeah and I I <laughs> the earliest report card you know like when you the parents go and they meet your elementary school teacher and hey he's charming he's lovely you know Loves soccer or whatever, um, but the takeaway was this kid's seven, and I've never met anyone who worries to the manner and uh, to the depth that that your son worries. You know that that was. I'm not making that up. That is that is that's the line from my elementary school teacher. And if you think about it, the the triumph of my life is you know you should take on a business where you're paid to worry, right? right. And that's yeah. that's. Hedge fund and macro, you worry about everything. Like, if you're, if you're a stock guy, you're doing tech, you worry about te- tech innovation, tech changes, whatever. If it's medicine, it's the next thing, and you, know, you worry about your knowledge. I worry about everyth- everything, everything. Uh, and I get paid for that, and I get really well remunerated for that. So, so that was an ace. If I come at it another way, um, from close proximity to, to larger than life characters like Chris Binodi. So he physically is very commanding. You, know, you must be six four or something, You, you built like a tank. Um, and he's all over the place. His arms and legs are like tentacles. Um, and um, and I, I don't wish to give away too much, but let, let's just say that that type of person, um, that for them to succeed, that it was impossible. This is the challenge of the eagle. Um, Not the eagle, but the EGO, in that there is a certain type, the Icarus type, that cannot accept the admission of errors. That that would prick the bubble, right? They would be nothing if they were to contaminate their space with errors. And I saw this again. I'm not naming Chris I've seen this, and I'm sure you've seen it, yeah. where um, you know traders and other members of the team are are whipping boys for the most grotesque um, tantrums, which come out from this absolute zero tolerance of accepting errors. And, and so I I watched that at first hand because I thought heavens, this is imagine the let's let's talk in the world of metaphor the. The hundred meters Olympic final. I'm guessing the other twelve contestants. But you, know, when you see those finals, it is the pinnacle of human engineering, um, and the margin of victory is profoundly uh, tight and small. And yet, someone wins. And is it because the, is it that Icarus? You know, that was my thought to myself: Was do I have to become an ass? to succeed um, and I rejected it I rejected it and and maybe I have not flown as high and anyone listening to this and who like goes mmm, and then kind of delves farther and looks into me you're going to find that for 15 years my compound annual growth rate was sub 8% I think it was 7 decimal 7 point something or other and you're going to be underwhelmed um, and, and fair fair dues you know um, I was in a orthogonal investor i you know like what is the one thing that we all desperately hope that bitcoin will become we all hope that it'll become this uncorrelated asset that was me i was uncorrelated to anything in the universe of finance Um, and i offered you know tail blow up risk and normally that normally it's like an insurance premium you pay that every year I was like, no, oh, like, don't send the cheque, I'll send you a cheque I paid 7% back in the mail so anyway, that, that's my, my small effort um, so I want to say that I rejected the Icarus and, and for me I've always been the, uh, the author of the many and numerous grotesque mistakes and errors of judgement and of course I've been the architect of the, the successes which have been far and few between
0: It's funny you brought up performance because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is I I remember watching uh, an interview, I think it was just after you shut down Eclectica uh, that you did with Raul uh, Paul on on Real League. And I I looked back at your performance and I had a different take on it. Um, That was a brutal time. And I thought that the compounded growth rate you were throwing up was really impressive for a for a macro fund at that period of time, um, especially compared to the market. I mean, well, I mean from she's 2001 to what 2014. The S and P was flat. Well, maybe not 2001, but certainly 2000 to 2013, 2014. The S and P was flat. Um, you know, I thought what what. But you seemed, in that interview, and I don't want to, I, you and I have never spoken, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but you seemed sort of apoplectic. You seemed like you were throwing up your hands. Was it, was it frustration with the market, Hugh? Or was it frustration with people's unrealistic expectations in a world where, and, and, and if you don't agree with me, feel free to say so, but I feel like, you know, I feel like macro was being completely blotted out by central bank activity. I just, I I, I mean, sure, there were macro plays of the last 10, 15 years. But, you know, if you think about it, at least from my perspective, central banks sort of took that job on themselves to mute out macro plays. So with, with that in context, and compared to other macro funds... I thought the performance was, was really solid. What left you apoplectic? What made you want to shut down Eclectica? Because, again, from my perspective, considering the environment, I, I thought it looked pretty good. And I remember being shocked you were shutting down the fund.
1: Well, I, I, I have to tell you, yours was definitely a minority view, but thank you for it anyway. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, to the day I die, I will be passionate, yeah? But by the end of the tenure and and the, the thing that i'm most proud of is that I secured tenure you know, I secured fifteen years in at the helm of an eclectic macro portfolio that that on occasions went for it you know um, but I was joyless at the end why was I joyless so um i I dared to be different, you know. I, I, like I said, I was the author, the architect of both, you know, successes and failures. Um, imagine, I think at the max, I was responsible for like a billion and a half around about 2012, and that would be both uh, long short plus long only mandates and a uh, uh, and a uh, carved out uh, carved out global agricultural equity fund. There was a point where we had the largest agricultural equity fund in 2006 2007 um and um you you couldn't reach me i i didn't want flow i didn't want edge i didn't want investment banks calling me you know the, the model is you pay the street the cio you get you know the, the top salespeople, you get the best access and all the time like where's here like how do i reach here i got and, and then they're like my guys like no, you do not. Like <laughs> you, my, you will kill me. And you know, I had no telephone on my desk. I had a BlackBerry. No one had the number for it. I sat detached, either in the building for my team. I had a, a dark office. I played Pink Floyd, and I, I read books and like Vogue magazine and and stuff like that. Or I sat at home, and um, and yet I stuff comes to me like I haven't managed a, a portfolio since. Um, the end of two thousand and seventeen i 'm on this tiny tin pot volcanic island in, the, in a sea of shade like in the, Med, in, in the in the Caribbean. Um i don 't have a Bloomberg, and yet like it reaches me I, I cannot explain it it reaches me, so I had the confidence to cut it all i mean you know like what is a com- a, what is a competitive advantage it 's a deep moat that your competition find it hard to copy and to replicate. And, and my deep moat was the absurdity the, the absurdity of the, the courage that I, I reckon I could figure out and I didn't need uh, the best minds you know? and so who's going to sign up like, which future prospective CIO is like yeah I'm going to buy billions and I'm not going to speak to the street and I'm not going to carry a telephone and I'm going to sit around in the dark and I'm going to listen to punk rock Yeah, I dare you but you know my point was my competition you know, back in the day before tech, right? So you know, before the kind of winner-takes-all global platform and the, and the billions that uh, are accorded to that, uh, the highest return on intellectual capital was the 2 in 20 of, of the uh, hedge fund space. And so a rational person, there might be some errors and omissions, but by and large, if you take a large enough sample, you would discover that um, hedge fund managers were amongst the smartest individuals on the planet. Yeah. By one definition. Mm -hmm. And my point is, it makes no sense to outsmart or to attempt to outsmart the smartest people on the planet. So I deconstructed it and I said, well, why is it that these profoundly damn smart people occasionally mess it up? And and that's what that, that was my starting point. That was my vantage point. But and that all worked, you know, 2008. I made 31.5% or whatever, you know, I made 50% in the month of October, Paul Tudor Jones made 50% in the month of October 1987, um, I, I did it in 2008, he was heralded as a genius and I was run out of town, my AUM went from two, 200 million dollars to 30 million dollars and it didn't come back, it didn't come back and so I was persuaded that I was too crazy, and so I was persuaded to that dread, dreaded word, institutionalize the business. And I'm shameful to say that I accepted such was the lure of making money. Yeah? And, I, and so I wore a suit. And, you know, I started, like, previously I'd hired soccer players and rap singers and, like, misfits. And then I was hiring, you know, derivative traders from investment banks. And I ended up on antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Money came in, the money came in, but it was the most miserable time in my life. So, you yeah, know that—that's what you were seeing at the tail end of that. You were seeing a joyless individual that—that that had a profound spark and a passion, but the joy had been beaten out of him.
0: And is that—is that has the disconnection? Because I mean, you seem—you seem much more upbeat, much more. Happy, honestly, uh, has that? Do you attribute that mostly just to disconnecting from the business and spending time on St. Barts? Do you miss it?
1: Um, so I, I had to think long and hard about um, what it was that I missed, um, and actually, the, the truth be told, I, I missed the, I, you know, and her, evident from this conversation, I, I missed the showboating. I missed the risk of presenting my the real the real me and uh, to down the consequences. Yeah, I missed the frission of pressing the send button on another insane investment letter that would you would be quoting the heights of European intellect intelligentsia but also would be quoting a book on lesbianism, you know. I miss you know, I miss that. I missed that. Um and I've yeah, you know, I've been persuaded to climb out of my man cave and so i'm reinventing that i'm loving twitter i wish people had told me about twitter um earlier but for me i discovered it two years ago and i feel i almost feel like i'm and i am planning hopefully to take it a step further i feel like I'm, I'm managing a virtual hedge fund so again i was always disengaged from my team and i now feel like i have an enormous team and they all sit on twitter and and from yes. time to time I, I reach out and I say hey guys this is what I'm thinking and then they, they hit me with their feedback and sometimes like hey guys has anyone got the chart on you know blah 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 where's the implied vol on dollar cnh and it comes back you know and so maybe at some point I, I, I'd i love the idea of kind of trying to create a, like a game like a, a virtual hedge fund with kids and anyone like on Twitter and then they would, they would have submissions we do a weekly investment policy Yeah, you know, it'd be a bit like I'd be a bit Trumpy and I, I you know I don't suffer fools gladly but also I embrace wonderful ideas so may, maybe that's coming in the future we'll see
0: Now Twitter is a I, <clears throat> I laugh all the time I can't believe it's free uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's changed my one of my partners I met him via Twitter Um Okay, so so moving, moving a little ahead, because I, I've got you on here. We've got we to gotta talk about this. As a macro guy that has dedicated so much time and energy toward the macro side of things and looking through that lens, um, the, I, I would think that you'd almost be tempted to launch a fund right now. Um, because I, I look at this current environment and I go, good golly, this is right in this guy's wheelhouse. Um, So, A, have you been tempted to launch a fund? And then, B, do you agree with me? Are you looking at – I mentioned earlier, Hugh, how I felt like one of the things that made it personally tough for me on the money management side was um, the constant central bank intervention. And, you know, every time things would start to break a certain way that I thought, okay, they're going and now it's on, now we need to – you know, you'd whatever it takes from Draghi or what, you know, fill in the blank. It was just one thing after another. Um, and that whole time I spent thinking they can keep playing this game. You know, you have the people go all oh, the deficits and but but I came to the realization that they could keep playing this game until inflation became a problem. Um, and now here we are. A, do you agree with that take from me? Do you think we're looking at a macro play, macro playground right now, where it is coming back with a vengeance, and that it's going to be the story for the next several years, or do you think, or do you not agree with that take?
1: Oh, it's the story for sure. It's the story. The the, the economy is the story. Um, heavens! Um, again, great great questions. Uh, there's, but, uh, like your questions are like. Uh, Russian dolls there's a doll within a doll within a doll within a doll <laughs> and it's a question of like how deep does one want to kind of go um, I was two years after 2008 being curmudgeonly and kind of like being like the former treasury secretary in 29 the, in Andrew Mellon wanting to
0: purge the system of his modernness. Yep. yeah yep. And, exactly and what you mean I was too
1: that wasn't my role and I, I for, again I I I for went like my 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 responsibility to my clients, yeah, you know, I should have been hoovering up you know the s and p fell over fifty percent, I should have been buying the s and p instead I was calling names, um you know, I was like a minister of the cloth, so thankfully i I, I got my shit together um uh, and again, when I talk about like the things like um what I want to say uh, like the end of, i think it was end of 2013 I wrote a letter uh, and i said and i was i was Uh, catching a rift off entourage and there was a scene where this kind of former great director I think it's based on the guy who did uh, the Sweeney the Sweeney or something whatever Paul Newman movie Paul Newman and Redford movie um and but then, but thereafter, you know, nothing had really worked out. And and his line was, "Hey, what if I was to tell you we can make this movie for forty million dollars? We're going to gross four four Oscars. We're going and we're going to gross like like two hundred fifty million dollars. Is that something you'd be interested in?" It was so preposterous, and and I and I felt a little bit preposterous after those two um, silly years of being curmudgeonly bad. But it, as I realised my senses, um can I say I forgave the central banks? I came to to reach an understanding of their decisions an acceptance of their decisions and at the end of 2013 uh, my proclamation was that my best guess of the central tendency for risk assets was that they would trend higher and that really there was very little role for the risk protection offered by my my ilk and, and if you can imagine the headlines, the last bear turns bullish, really, 2013, you know. Um, so, 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 you know, I think there's a, perhaps a, a slightly kind of different nuance to where we are today. But uh, back then, we were resetting the, in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, uh, in the month when QE was launched in the sovereign territory of the United States of America in March 2009, Citigroup was trading at nine, nine bucks. And like any young kid punk watching it today, like, yeah, big deal. trades at I think, 37 or something today. But nine, nine was where it traded in like 1974. Like, City the system was going to reset to zero. You know, we were going to reset to zero like we did in 1929. And this, the central banks had a choice to make and they decided to be a bit like Atlas and to hold it mm. and, and to, to actually decide that the wider needs of society required them to support asset prices to, to keep the thing going. Um, and that's what they did. And um, I would not have done it. I, I, I would like to say that um, that was the right Right decision. That was the right decision. Um, so, fast forward to today. Um, t- today is macro. Um, t- so today, you've got again all that curmudgeonly behaviour, and now everyone's like, "I told do you so." What did you you, t- you told me? This this charade, this circus troupe, will continue until the inevitability of higher prices of the, of, the, of the dreaded inflation. And boy, it looks like we're there now. Um, and I'm probably going to upset many by. Um, no, I don't subscribe to that. I don't subscribe to. Clearly, there are higher prices um, manifesting themselves today, and I think my best guess is that those higher prices will continue to manifest themselves uh, for some time, uh, mostly in the domain of non discretionary items, which are typically commodities. Um, but I. Don't subscribe to that being inflation, Mm -hmm. because I do not, despite, perhaps because of the protestations of the Fed that they've printed all of this money, Um, I'm a great believer that it's the private banking sector that creates money. And because of their near-death experience in 2008, they just have not had the risk appetite to expand monetary creation. In Europe, money has been compounding at like 2% minimum. That, that just does not support higher prices. Instead, I, I have maybe an invented reality, but an, an alternative reality. You know, something just... <laughs> something profoundly absurd happened. You know, we had an alien body-snatching invasion. Uh, governments, I, I guess, rightly... I mean, I don't like the coercion, but, you know, there should have been a choice which was like... You don't have to go to work. You know, work at home and and whatever. We'll pay you a stipend. We'll 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 see you okay, right? Um, but you know, we we closed down in industrial activity globally. Um, outside of China, we did it for like eighteen months. Uh, China kind of got back really quickly, and of course, they've had um, they've just <laughs> they decided that they were missing it, so they encouraged it. You know, this year with both mass lock lockdowns, but um, you know. We closed down the factories of the world. The largest customer in the world, the U.S. household, was then given about five trillion dollars of checks, and the government's like, "Hey, go, go spend, go spend!" Yeah. Right at a moment where you know two thirds of the economy, which we call the services sector, you know, getting your haircut, going to a restaurant, going to the cinema, blah blah blah, were closed and so initially you sat there and you're going wow what do I do, what do I do and so rightly you paid down your your credit credit card balances and, and what have you and then you just went you know, fuck it, sorry, forgive my French the, but you know, you, you phoned up Mr. Amazon and like, you, you ordered like rubbish from China and, and like, the guy's like, they're just opening, imagine like, opening the shadows to the factory, trying to find the light switch, getting the guy to like, dust down the machines, and then there's a tsunami of orders from all these mad, pent up, crazy Americans, right? So yeah, we, we have higher prices, we have higher prices um, and and then you have you, you have your crazy uncle, the, the Federal Reserve. Um, you know, the market saw all of that like immediately from the, the recovery process that we saw in March in the depths of March 2020, You know, 10-year yields troughed at 46, 47 basis points. but you know the free market started repricing uh, rates higher. We, we pushed them from 46 to, to 300 basis points. Uh, the problem we have is the boomerang around the Fed. The Fed's like, the Fed wakes up like, Whoa! we're now at three hundred basis points, and the Fed's going to raise rates. Like, really? You know, you, you, now you're just going to amplify. We got this. Now you're going to amplify it, and now I feel we're going to get oh, just a bloodbath of an economic uh, recession, uh, and that will tame. That will tame the, 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 the price. It will take the sting out of the price thing, uh, it will not tame um, higher commodity prices because higher commodity prices uh, are are baked in owing to the, insan- the the Stockholm syndrome of the environmental social <laughs> governance and and the and the fact that periodically the Federal Reserve pan it, you know since two thousand and eight so where, where are we two thousand and eight two thousand and thirteen the Fed panics. And it announces, "It's like, oh, the economy is getting stronger. We're going to do QT," um, which it doesn't. But you know, the the markets take rates to three percent. Adult unemployment is seven and a half percent. You know, the the economy was five years later. The economy was like nine percent normally greater than it had been five years ago. And and they, they whacked whack three percent rates against the the market against the the economy. Um, Janet, Janet, you know Janet Yellen was at least she was timid, but she raised rates. But you know she, she's like, mm, I don't really know if this is a good idea. I'm going to do it 25 increments, and I'm not going to do a lot. And I'm and I'm really sorry that I'm doing it. I can appreciate her timidity, but then Bonkers Jay comes in thinking he's he he was born in his head to be a hero,
0: mm-hmm. and he
1: wants to, he he wants to be Paul Volcker, and he doesn't understand the context. Makes heroes and villains, right? And the and the the hero worshiping of of Volker, um, I would I would not disencourage, but it it has to be said against the fact that he was able to raise rates when total debt to GDP was like 1.4x, right? Today it's 4.4x. So good luck, like good luck raising rates against that environment. You you will create a reputation, but I don't think you'll be a hero. So. I-
0: I No, I'm actually relieved to hear you say that. It's one of the things that we've been trying to explain to our clients, and I'm not sure that we've done a good enough job. But, I, I, you know, I look at the, the moving commodities, particularly in the energy sectors, and that's it, not inflation to me. I, I, think it's, I, I feel like it's a uh, consequence of misallocation of capital. Right. Which you which you hilariously referred to as the Stockholm syndrome, which I I, I couldn't agree with more. Um, but, you know, you've, you've got the you got the inflationistas running around Oh, the inflation, Oh, the inflation. And then I pull up the dollar index and it's at one of two and a half. Um, you know, this isn't so much of an inflation story. Would you do you agree with that, that it's much more of a misallocation of capital or the Stockholm syndrome, much more so than inflation? Right.
1: This allocation of capital is spot on. Um, we, you know, to, to quote, so let's let's um, let's go back to, to Buffett. Let's go back to Charlie to Munker. Um We're at again one of those periods where what do I want to say um, of fictitious wealth that you know um, it's an imagined reality that the perception of wealth exceeds the reality of wealth. We're at one of those points, um, and by that, what I mean is so yeah the stock market US stock market recently peaked at a capitalization of 2.5x GDP US GDP yeah and, and that's high like you know this I know this but other people don't know this that's a, that's a high mark yeah. that's beyond that's beyond yeah. the mark of, of uh, 2000 we, we, we never it. thought we'd we never thought we'd see 2000 again and here we are 20 years later and we've exceeded it by 20% um, and, and beh- but behind that I want to say that the majority, when I say majority, I mean like 75%, if not more, of single-name stocks are trading at the same levels that prevailed 15 to 20 years ago. That those index levels have been pushed there, as you know, by um, an exceptional band of businesses which have been deemed either correctly or otherwise, to, be, uh, to have the least commercial risk of any entities in the world. And at the pinnacle of that is Apple. And you know, we had a great beta test because with the virus, we, we saw the, the sharpest contraction in GDP ever. And yet their businesses were more than robust. Their profits expanded. Right? So uh, what you actually see, what that is, is that is profound risk aversion. You know, that, that's the equivalent of buying the ten-year German government bond at a minus minus two percent yield. It's like I'm gonna, I'm accepting of loss, but my loss here is prescribed two percent. Whereas if I go into the stock market, it's unprescribed. I know there's going to be a loss. Uh, at least in, with the ten-year bond, it's two percent, and I understand that. Right? I'm gonna go. I'm I'm committing suicide slower than everyone else. Yeah. yeah, And buying Apple is the same thing. You know, that thing is going to fail way after everything else has failed. But it's the, the emphasis and the... By when you capitalize stocks out of fear, then you overstate wealth versus the reality of wealth. And, and so that's what I've... I'm, I want to say I'm as fearful... Of the economic of, of the the project the prospective project trajectory for risk asset prices, I am as fearful now as I was in two thousand and seven. Mm. Right, so that's a big that's a big statement. And then let me round that out by saying: so why am I not, you know, champing at the bit um, to jump back in and manage other people's money? And the reason is, I don't think I will ever forget. Um, the pain that I had to endure, being one of like maybe two hundred people in the world that could actually see the future, uh, the pain of of the, of the silliness of the the corruption of the political system, you know, of the banning of short positions, you know, they will do anything to obfuscate and to postpone the day, the inevitable day of reckoning, and to be charged with you know, a big risk. Po- po- uh, po- portfolio and, and charged with a mandate you know to let it rip Um, I, I you know what I just don't want to do that again it will not be easy
0: no and, and it's and it's not I, I was joking with a buddy of mine we I, I don't run a hedge fund I run an RIA so I'm managing virtually all retirement money and I just said that trying to manage risk in this environment is like trying to run through a rainstorm and not get wet um mm-hmm. you know and and you're managing these people's money, and, and by by the, by the good graces of the Lord, or whoever you want to prescribe it to or, or ascribe it to, um, we've been able to, uh, you know, protect client wealth through a lot of this stuff. But it, it's it's just an absolute it's an absolute mess. And I'm with you. I speaking, getting back to the inflation thing right now, Hugh. I want to get your take on this because as I sit back and look at the world. Um, I feel like the one thing that everybody isn't talking about is the thing that kind of scares me the most, which is, right, it's all about the inflation, it's all about the inflation, blah, 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 right? And then you look again, and I'm going to bring up the dollar index again. You see the dollar index at 102 am 5 um, I'm, I'm a bit of a believer, and I want to run this past you because I know I'll get your honest opinion on it, but I'm kind of a big believer that, that I am far more afraid in this environment of a DXY getting to – you know, 115, 120 than I am it losing another 30%. I think that that's the big risk. Do you agree with that? Uh, 100%, 100%. Uh, let me try
1: and see if I can recount some of my uh, appalling um, rap poetry to describe where we are. <laughs> uh, the, the American queen, the queen of the reserve currencies, you know, we've been smoking Prozac Whereas the, the the worker bees of the mercantilist you know uh, economies of Southeast Asia and the, and the German monolith, they've been smoking napalm, right? We uh, the American household has been uh, pimped out uh, by sovereign of ob- external sovereign objectives, and I despair that. No one gets it, and it's so damn evident and so damn obvious the politicians don't get it. Of course, they don't get it, right? You know, yeah. you, hey, look, you, what, you know, what did we offer up? We offered up Trump and Biden. That was the best that the, the, the free world could offer. I mean, you deserve the shit that's coming your way, you know. and uh, We've got to change. Why is it that you, know, you become the leader of the free world? and then you've got to kind of sign a contract with Netflix to actually make money. I mean, you can't, you can't make that up. Why not pay? Why not pay the commander and the chief, right, what they get to be a S&P 500 company and, and, and get, like, excellence as opposed to, like, head cases, you know. So so there's that going on. But, you know, in the deep talent pool of, of, of economics and finance and Wall Street, and, and I said to you with 2 and 20 supposedly you get the brightest minds. Um, I, I can think of five people in the world who understand money. Uh, and I can think of only one person, one or two people, who actually understand the the, the, the serfdom that's being imposed on the United States of America. So th- let me back that up. So uh, China, there's, like, there was a pact, and it's a humanitarian pact. And... There was the admission and the acceptance. So this is a big statement. You know, American policymakers, uh, you know, Clinton was the one who signed it. But, you know, there were, he, he was one of many. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he, he cannot be singled out. But he, he was the, the goon that signed it. You know, except to China, into the WTO. Um, and we were taking, you know, this peasant, agrarian, I mean, not in not when Clinton was signing, but you know when we go back to the detente with uh, Nixon and stuff, we were taking this agrarian society that, that tilled, like, dead soil that had no fertilizer, right, where people were subsistence living for a dollar a day if they were lucky, right, and, we, um, and now you've transformed 800 million of them and they earn 10,000 bucks a year. So, um, for humanity, I think that had to be done. Now, the cost of that is that the unskilled labour pool in the rest of the world like took it in the ass big time right mm. and, and you had to be I would like to have to make that decision It's a tough really tough decision some will suffer some will gain but you would kind of the quid pro quo would be there will be a point where your toiling will be rewarded by the fact that you will have this wealthy super commercial nation less prone to ideology yeah and, and more committed to the commercialization to being good commercial partners, and two plus two would equal like twenty two like we will all be richer um, now again, the great financial crisis and whatever messed that up and but I want to date it from like about thirteen years ago. China has steadfastly refused to boost endogenous domestic Chinese growth and instead. It has relied upon um, external sources, namely the United States household, to generate the growth that, that its leaders are too scared of trying to promote internally. And, and technically what that means is the United States consistently runs a capital account surplus that all the world's savings head to the United States. Now that would be super, really cool if we were in the 19th century and we were still building out dams and railroads mm. and then you know and then the highways of the, the 20th century and then etc. Um, we're not. We live in sca- capital is not scarce in the United States of America, um, and there is no appetite for additional investment. So when you have, when you run a current account, sorry not current, a capital account surplus, okay, what happens? And there's just there's like there's no pushback on this. What happens is the gap between savings and investment has to expand. So in a world where investment does does not grow, savings have to fall, right? How do savings fall? Because you lose your job. You lose your job and you go to Walmart, you still gotta buy stuff for the kids. You still gotta put gas in the tank. Yeah, you gotta buy uniforms for the kids going to school. That's this saving. Right? This is the serfdom of where we are. If you want to stop it, like you know, we don't need the Federal Reserve. We need the U.S. Treasury um, to impose a withholding tax on sovereign parking of capital in the United States. You want to pimp our house, or we're going to charge you for it. Easy, easy. And yet, you try reading that in the Wall Street Journal.
0: Oh, yeah, you won't. I mean, you won't see it. But but doesn't this point to a breakdown of the monetary? I mean, I, I, I keep trying to wrap my head around the fact that, you know, that the, the dollar going higher for all the reasons you laid out is the main risk. And so now you've got the world reserve currency where our biggest problem, despite record debt loads and all that kind of stuff, our biggest problem is the currency appreciating too? Like, to me, one of the things I'm trying to wrap my head around, Hugh, and I, that I wanted to ask you, was doesn't that just point to the to the uh, us really outliving the ut- the utility of the modern monetary system? Meaning that if you know, if the reserve currency, if the biggest problem is it going up in value, um, you know, what I mean, what are we supposed to do in the U.S.? I mean. You and I have I agree on the problem, but what do you do? Just keep trying to just print money in, into infinitum, and I mean, you can do the charge you said on 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 uh, you know on 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 reserves and 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 additional funds flowing into the U.S. But do you think that alone would fix it, or does it point to a larger problem that we've outlived the utility of the of the post World War II monetary system?
1: I uh, I think it does it. Let me. Backtrack and tell you why I think it does it. So the the dollar reserve today is actually very very similar um, to the cross of dollar sorry the, the cross of gold which crucified um, you know the the American household in the late nineteen twenties and very much was fell in the nineteen thirties um, where um, to, yeah, it's, it's currencies represent a, an engagement a contract of engagement between sovereign powers uh, back in the nineteen twenties and. You know, with this, you could. There was no elasticity in the supply of gold, and therefore, uh, to get a realignment in uh, in trade balances between great, you know, economic uh, spheres of the world, prices had to adjust. What is uh, and what was the predominant price in the economy? Wages, which is to say, you know, wages had to be cut. Or wages could not enjoy the full propensity of the of the productivity gains that you know the organisation of labour with capital was providing, um, and that came unstuck with disastrous consequences. That is the same thing today. That um, we need a higher remimbe, right? And what that would do is it would reward the Chinese worker bees. You know these household citizens who work hard. Um, if, you know, if, if the Rimmbi were 20% higher, then let's use a preposterous example, a Ferrari. Ferraris must be made in Italy. I don't know where BMWs are made, but a Ferrari is made in Italy. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it would be 20% less absurdly expensive if the Rimmbi was 20% higher. Yeah. yeah. So you'd be you would be wealthier, your spe- your purchasing power would, would be greater, and you're most likely to be encouraged to spend it, right? And you would bring the world back into balance. But instead where we are, we're in a world today where probably and there's a bit of estimation in this, but the residential commercial real estate value of all things in China is about 80 trillion 80 trillion dollars in America that figure is 33 trillion okay really? uh, you know um, and of course you know that the US economy is about 21 trillion dollars in terms of GDP and the inflated size of the Chinese economy is 15 these figures are just nonsense okay uh, and so that at some point the Chinese they're, they're gonna they're, they're gonna wish to devalue they're gonna go the opposite in a world where we need you know other currencies especially mercantilist countries which are persistently running trade surpluses. The, the the trade surplus was coming down in china into covid it really was it, it showed really promising signs that they were getting this endogenous thing um, and then boom you know covid the virus and we're back at the kind of almost at the highs of, of the surpluses of censure gdp and, and and I swear, it, to my mind, uh, it's spoiler alert. But it's kind of the end of the Squid Game on Netflix, where you're di- you've gone from a hundred contestants to two, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to make this. This doesn't happen in a Squid Game. If you, if you get to watch it, but you know, like you're, you're fighting your buddy. You don't want to kill your buddy, but your buddy's got to kill you. It's this, this dilemma. What do you do? And so, like you know, you're. You know, and, but your buddy's really got the beat. He's really going to kill you, and then you just turn around and you, you're you're grasping uh, a grenade uh, with the pin out, and and he, and you look at him, you smile, and you just release your hand, and boom, you you like no one wins. I'm describing an environment where no and no one wins. If the Chinese, God forbid, and probability-wise, just now, I mean, we are, oh, I mean, rationally, I would say maybe five percent, um, maybe. maybe Five to ten percent, and but 80 trillion dollars. Um, you've got to reprice that, that real estate, uh, which means the renminbi is, is going to devalue. And if it devalues, I mean, when people will look back and they'll say, Can you believe the goods thought that the greatest fear was inflation when we're on mm-hmm. the precipice of the, the greatest deflationary explosion? Yeah, I, I talked about it in 2015, I called it a, you know, uh, a post uh. Uh, Is a Mad Max world. he devalues it's a Mad Max world, and then you will get a you get a profound change in the in that contract between sovereigns. But you know it'll it'll take place over like fifteen years, and we probably, God forbid, will have uh, further escalation, possibly in, into a world war. I mean, you know, let, let's go let's go nutty. But you know, if if you read Palantir. Um, and, you know, and the stuff that, you know, their intel is, I mean, who's, who's got their intel? Mm. And, and they're, they're seeing a one in three chance of like, what's going on in Europe escalating into
0: the real deal. And one in three. And people are worried about inflation. I mean, you yeah, yeah. I'm happy in St. barts <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Well, on that note, on the China, what, I mean, it seems to me like there's been no, I mean, I haven't seen no evidence of any policy change. But I look at that Chinese real estate scenario, and I, to me, it just really looks like they've got a tiger by the tail. How, how do you, you know, because the price fixing, not allowing things to sell to, below a certain price, and, and we, where does that go? I mean, like you said, you know, it looks like the it looks like the cards are pretty clear. They're they they're, they're going to have to devalue, even though that, like you pointed out, and and I couldn't agree with you more. That what they need to do is go the opposite way. But if they do that they destroy the real estate bubble and that's driving how much of their i mean how much of their gdp is the real estate i mean i know it's 80 trillion dollars worth but it's got to make up a ridiculous amount of gdp on an annual basis doesn't it yeah well yeah
1: it, well, it, well it does you know at the margin you know like useless infrastructure and infrastructure investment spending in china uh, was a breath of fresh air like you know I, I visited China extensively between two thousand and uh, two thousand and um, two thousand and nine and and twenty fifteen let's let 's see and you know, was, was never failed to be amazed by the you know the, you were you were traveling in blade runner territory just just mm-hmm. astonishing and and the great shame something which crosses the, all all political divides is why there's not there's not the intellectual constituency to understand that the US and, and other Western nations like the UK are woefully under uh, understocked in the best infrastructure and whatever cost they tell you it will be and when people bitch about the cost of it in a hundred years time future generations will thank you. Thank they'll walk past your grave and you say that was the smart generation that finally got it, right? You know, the what what that does to prospective demand by improving productivity, you know, boom. So the Chinese got that, but I want to say everything post like two thousand and nine, maybe two thousand and twelve, was you know was a bridge to nowhere. Um, it inflated GDP because you know, you were you had you were committing a project, let's say a billion dollar project, with a net present value of uh, five hundred million dollars. Okay. And, and unlike the US, where we have clear and transparent, most of the time, markets, there is not that clear transparency. And so there hasn't been the amortization of that 500,000, which is to say that GDP has been woefully overstated in China in the years following the great financial crisis. The, the allure and the reason why we got the Chinese property disaster or prospective disaster is that you know, someone's got to pay the piper And the the cost back then, uh, you know, like all these, the 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 banking sector is largely within the confines and the control of the state sector. Okay, Um, these if you're if you're doing billion dollar loans to NPVs of five hundred million, right? How do you where do you get the wherewithal? Because that's your asset. How do you support liabilities with all these negative NPVs? And the answer is that the the real uh, the, the the real in, uh, real rates of saving returns for chinese households have been ruinously negative for a very long time and therefore that drove and that uh, that pushed money into the domestic uh, real estate market but you know they've done that you know their rates you know you know that they're very negative um, so i don't know what how- yeah I, I don't know have the solution for that, but you the United States should be protecting itself as and a withholding tax very very definitely would say you know sure do it but you'll run a huge like with with, with where they are just now um a withholding tax and a, a, a charged charge at a high rate three percent three percent is where the ten year treasury is just now um I want to say that that would raise. That would raise an astonishing sum of money. That would raise, uh, I want to say, $300 billion per... I would charge it annually. As long as it's there, I charge it. And and then my great... The great thing that I would do is... Hey, listen, let's not be naive. We still... We cannot allow the resetting of risk asset prices to zero. Um, Yes, we have Marxist friends, and they might applaud it, but those Marxist friends typically have like, really rich parents and, you know, and they have got estates and they've never had to work as in the real world right? Um, we cannot countenance that and so at some point the Federal Reserve will change its policy and it will step in with the Treasury and it will be full you know, hands on deck to try and put a bottom on asset prices there's an economic cost to that, and so I would say that I, my dream is we have a withholding tax on these uh, uh, reserve banks holding US treasuries, treasury bills and what have you, um, that we we use the proceeds to underwrite a sovereign wealth fund, for the, but explicitly for the citizens of America, um, that went into the great financial crisis without assets because the last 15 years have been profoundly unfair that there's a profound cost in underwriting asset prices and 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 that's, that charge has been charged to every single American mm-hmm. when it should have been charged to the asset-owning community who have benefited from it. And so it's kind of Buggins' turn We could change the world. We really could change the world
0: yeah. for the better, for yeah. the better. There, and I, I have, I mean, I hear you and I, and I love those solutions. I just have zero confidence that the powers that be at the moment, <laughs> No, I, it's just madness. So, so along that line, Hugh, and, and I know you're a busy guy. I could sit here and do this for three hours, picking your brain. Um, but but in closing, and, and feel free to answer this in as long form as you'd like to, is, do you think it's sort of baked into ca- the cake at this point that that we are staring at a, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what, I mean, what are we looking at over the next 10, to 15 years? Do you think this is going to be kind of a... Uh, Great Depression 2.0 type deal. Obviously, central bank intervention is going to be at the ready. What, what do you think we're looking at? How does Hugh see the map going forward for the next, you know, eight to fifteen years?
1: Um, I see it in term, in stark terms that the most my most likely projection would be a muddling through, mm-hmm. where the central tendency of asset prices is to move higher. Albeit, when the if the S and P trades back at its all-time high because we're most likely to have that persistency in elevated commodity prices for the reasons you know, we discussed with our ESG community. Um, it's kinda hard to imagine that we can push through into really much higher price levels, but you know, let's let's visit that when we get there. Um, so I don't doubt that that trajectory, but I think it, it will be undone by uh, political society rejecting it um through radicalization of society and and we we're, we we're, we're so close and the US feels like the most divided nation on, on the planet presently you know and that's not good so the you know the hardest the hardest and perhaps the most successful thing to do at this point is to abstain you know to be john marcher from the is who was it? Who wrote the, the the Beast in the Jungle? One of the, mm. the great um, the great writers, um, and and this was a guy whose destiny was to be an unremarkable fellow, you know, um, and then something big just leapt out and and changed his world, and and I think that's the flight path that we're on. I fear it was
0: Henry James. Henry James, thank yes. you, yes. the
1: wonderful Henry James.
0: So now, would you even and I'm and I'm keeping rolling here, but would you even steer clear of commodities at this point? Well,
1: yeah, well, I, I mean, hey, listen, uh, Real Tinto, Yeah, I was hitting my analytical team on Twitter, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, boy, I'm, I'm a dumbass, you know, I live on a, like, an island back to the sun, I go surfing, uh, can you, like, have I got this right? Real Tinto, you know, diversified, global major extractor of you know, industrial metals, does it have a 10% dividend yield and are they buying back like a ton of shares every year? I, 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 surely I got that wrong, right? But no, you know, the answer is it yields 10. And you look, and let's look at the chart. You know, the charts, the, the, the chart looks really, it's the kind of chart pattern that always kind of, you know, got me kind of feeling a bit funky because uh, you peaked in 2008 uh, and you've gone sideways with a wild. Oscillation, yeah, for the last um, for the last what is it, fourteen years, mm-hmm. and we're kind of we're kind of at the we're you know touching distance of the two thousand and eight highs, yeah. and so you know that you know, that's a setup whereby if you have a, you know, a fifteen year continuum of kind of sideways, and then the external market, in its wisdom and its foresight, is emboldened to pay new all time highs. You know something, something positive is going down. Yeah, something, and you want to jump in. I, 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 I played those situations like all my professional life, um, but I was saying to people, so I was saying, I think real will trade two x that two thousand and eight high, but the last thing I want to do at this point is buy it. Yeah. Because you know the and, and it's the thing with you like uranium I'm I'm, I'm sure oh, yeah. you know the uranium I mean uranium has the wildest uh, they're not they're not numerous but when it has a boom market opposite to the upside it is insane right it's I mean it you know
0: wasn't that last wasn't that last big one wasn't it like 05 06 07 right in there and it just mm-hmm. went insane Great
1: ripped, I want to say five to ninety. I, I may be making that up, but you know that's. And then imagine what a, a junior, like you know, tertiary stock that's on the edge of bankruptcy. What that does in that environment, oh. you know. Remember the Soros thing: buy me the best, and buy me the worst, and you're like what? Well, well, buy me the best in case I'm wrong, and buy me the the worst in case I'm right. You know that that logic. Yeah. And it's, I think uranium uranium could rip again, but again, it's intoxicating when you think of just how high it could go, but it means that when I look at stock prices, they, they've got gaps everywhere, I think. Again, yeah. I, I live with ghosts, I live with phantoms, and again, I'm no longer, you know, hey, again, this is these are just voices in my head. I'm not sitting with the Bloomberg terminal, I'm not managing a hedge fund, okay? So dismiss me at your will. But the market, I always talk about the, Uh, the bronching what is it the bronching buckles the the bucking bronco bucking bronco the bucking bronco the the intense volatility that markets markets do not wish you to succeed they protect these uh, bounties of future gold but you have to take safe passage through the most atrocious levels of price volatility and so commodities to answer your question would I be buying commodities? I think commodities can trade at least 2x higher uh, but I think they will punish you, you know, but you'll be St. Peter or St. Paul and the guards when they come looking for Jesus and they say, you know, the guy with the, the beard you know, the guy that did miracles you know, the guy with the, the sandals, you know, where is it? and they're like, G- Jesus, sorry I don't know that guy <laughs> commodities? I, I've never heard of commodities what, Uranium, what are you talking about? that's my book mm-hmm.
0: Oh no! And I hear you. It's one of the things that we think about all the time. Is I see this explosive upside that you are talking about, but I, you know, I could sit there. You, you may be looking at a fifty to seventy percent down, down move before that before that occurs. I mean, I, I just I don't think I've ever seen a setup where the, the tails are so out there where you, where you could easily see. You know a massive explosion to the upside and yet a just a collapse to the downside i i mm-hmm. it, it is a uh it's a bit of a widowmaker. well hey sir i i i really thank you for your time i've kept you way longer than than uh i said i would so thank you so much for coming on and hugh what is the book i didn't know that you'd re- written a book
1: well no no one does um <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> um and yeah, I mean well, the the book is written, but um, the um, yeah. The, well, the problem is, you know, you know, it's you know, but, you know, and we, the culture, popular culture, embraced that period of two thousand and eight, etc. Um, and and so it's hard to get people kind of it's hard to get people interested in the appetite, So who you knows? Maybe I'll self publish. Um, but
0: well, I I'd, they, 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 I'd
1: love to give it a read. Oh well, we well,
0: I'll send you. I'll send you the draft. <laughs> no, there you go, man. I would. I would love to do it. Well, I. I again, can't thank you enough. It's been so fun to pick your brain, and and we're a fan of you know everything you're doing. You've got the new. I was looking at your website before we came on. So for those listening, they can find you on Twitter at. Uh, I don't want to screw this up at at Henry underscore Hugh H U G H Henry H yeah. E N D R Y. And you're also, uh, you, you've got a, I didn't, even, I didn't realize you were also doing a podcast. When did you start oh. that?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I, so that is on uh, YouTube. And I, I'm even on Instagram in my swimwear. Um, uh, so I trade under the moniker of Hugh Hendry Official. And please, people, I will never reach out to you. I will never offer you any trading platform. There are so many scumbags um, on social media that kind of, you know, manipulate and, and, and impersonate me. But I do a show uh, every Friday we release. as uh, the Acid, Acid Capitalist Show. And and we're trying to bring punk rock to finance, and um, it's a shaman like I. Maybe I'm ashamed, but I am a shaman. I I, I get myself into a deep trance like state before we we tape those things. I watch them like everyone else out of curiosity. I've no idea who the person is that's presented in front of you, but uh, from time to time you we get great guests, and some from time to time I, I I say things which are either you know, dumb or provocative. <laughs>
0: From time to time, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, man, that's great. Well, we're going to be, I got to dial that up. Um, I'll I'll be watching that. And so you guys, you can also find him at hughendry.com, simple. And uh, great follow, great mind. And uh, once again, I just really appreciate you making yourself available and letting me throw all my questions at you.
1: No, yeah, well, you, your your questions stood out. They were they were thoughtful questions. So I appreciate that.
0: Well, thank you very much, and and I really hope you guys enjoyed listening to this as much as I did doing it. As always, again, you can find him at hendry underscore hugh HughHendry.com. dot com. Subscribe to the podcast channel. Give it a watch. I don't think I've ever seen you do something boring. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. it and and not bad for my. I'm I'm a fan of your work, man, and I I love it all and and love your. Uh, Love that Rebel, you know, uh, outside the lines way that you look at things because um, I think it's going to be especially useful going through the Mm -hmm. next, you know, the next period of time. I I don't think things are going to play out in the typical way. Um, So sounds like we're on the same path there. But uh, anyway, thanks again, and uh, thank you guys for listening. We got another great uh, episode coming up next week with Grant Williams. Um, so you won't want to miss that. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast.
1: without a client service agreement. Bulwer Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.